Well, if you have your Bibles with you again, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1046. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through uh, this section of Matthew's Gospel over the last several months, and we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 18, which is one of the most significant chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll begin reading this morning in verse number 10. And I'm going to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, straying sheep. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse number 10. And this is what the Word of God says. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. One of the Bible's prominent analogies to describe the relationship between God and his people is that of a shepherd and his sheep. Which of us can consider our relationship with God without thinking about the very first line of Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, where Jesus applies this image of shepherd and sheep to himself, saying, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There are other passages in the Bible that elevate this picture of shepherd and sheep to describe the relationship that God has with his people. For instance, in Psalm 100 in verse 3, the psalmist declared that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah declared that God will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead those that are with young. This image of shepherd and sheep continues all through the Gospel of Matthew. It first appears in Matthew chapter 2, where Matthew quotes the prophet Micah and his prophecy concerning Jesus that out of Bethlehem will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of the people of Israel. And then in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew wrote of Jesus' compassion for the crowd, saying that Jesus saw them as harassed and helpless as sheep without a shepherd. Then we have this passage here in Matthew chapter 18. And finally, in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew reports Jesus as saying that this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This image of shepherd and sheep used to describe God's relationship with his people is filled throughout Scripture. And nowhere is it more clear than in this passage before us this morning. The verses that we've read together continue the theme of caring for one another in the family of God that Jesus has been teaching his disciples since the beginning of Matthew chapter 18. If you recall from several weeks ago in verses 5 through 9, Jesus warned his disciples about causing another follower of Christ to stumble in sin. And then he warned them of the need to ruthlessly deal with their own sinful practices. This section now transitions from teaching about our actions towards fellow believers 
and discusses our attitude towards fellow believers. The purpose of this passage is clearly pastoral. It would be hard to imagine a passage of Scripture this morning which emphasizes more concern that Christ has for one of his sheep than this one. Jesus is giving us a profound glimpse of the love of God for his people even when they stray and our attitude towards straying sheep. So look with me in this text and notice, first of all, the principle in verse number 10. Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to you and me, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. In verse 10, Jesus uses the same language of little ones that has dominated the first nine verses of this chapter. The phrase little ones continues to refer to anyone, regardless of age, who has turned from their sins and in humble dependence trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation and for the forgiveness of their sins. And Jesus' reference to the little ones in verse number 10 serves as an introduction to what he is going to teach us in this passage about strange sheep. Now, within all of this framework of verse number 10, Jesus issues the principle. Do you see it? He simply says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. That's the principle. The beginning phrase, See that you do not despise, you'll notice, is a negative command. And it is used by Jesus to provide an intense warning that strongly implies God's displeasure with those who disobey this command that Jesus is issuing. Now, if you'll recall, Jesus has already made clear the seriousness of mistreating one of God's children in verse 6 of this chapter. He says in that verse, it would be better for a person who causes another Christian to stumble or mistreat them to have a great millstone fastened around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And so when Jesus issues this principle that we are to see to it that we do not despise one of these little ones, he is deadly serious. The word despise literally means to think down on. To despise someone is to look down upon them as inferior. To see them as someone who is not worthy of our consideration or our care. It is to disdain a person and treat them as contemptible and worthless. And so in the context of this principle in verse number 10, to despise one of these little ones is to treat one of God's own precious beloved children with disdain and contempt. Now to fully understand the gravity of what Jesus is teaching us with this principle, you have to keep the principle in the context of the entire chapter. How did Jesus begin his teaching in this chapter? Well, if you go back to verse number one, you find that the disciples came to Jesus in an argument over which one of them was the greatest. And it is out of that argument and out of that question posed to Jesus that Jesus issues these commands concerning the little ones or his followers. And from that teaching comes this principle about not despising one of his children. And in this context, Jesus was telling the disciples that their argument over who among them was the greatest in the kingdom was itself an act 
of despising his people. When one of them would elevate themselves to a position of superiority over the other 11, it was at their expense. And so Jesus is teaching the disciples in this context that instead of their proud, self-seeking attitude that created jealousy and envy and resentment, they should have been showing concern for one another and a desire to build one another up. So the disciples, in fact, were guilty of the very principle that Jesus was issuing to them. Now, that's in the context of the passage. And it helps us understand the principle that Jesus is giving. But what about you and me and our relationship to this principle? Well, I believe that as Christians... We are capable of despising one another in many different ways. I'm just going to mention a few this morning, and these are not exhaustive. These ways that we despise one another today are within the context of everything that Jesus is teaching us in Matthew chapter 18, both before this principle and what he will teach us in the weeks to come after this principle. So think with me for a moment about some of these ways that we despise one another. The primary way we do it is when we show partiality. That's exactly what the disciples were doing, by the way, in this context, showing partiality. In James chapter 1, James reminds us in verse 1 of James chapter 2, that we are to show no partiality as we hold on to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to show no partiality. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 35, Peter confessed that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And so Peter issues the principle and the point that God shows no partiality to those who believe in him, to those who fear in him, to those who do what he commands them to do. And as a result, believers are to show no partiality. The believer who pleases the Lord is one who sincerely honors him and honors everyone who belongs to him, no matter how insignificant they may seem to be. The believer who pleases the Lord does not give special honor to fellow Christians because of their wealth, because of their status, because of their position, or because of their influence. In fact, In James chapter 2, which is a worthy chapter for you to read and consider as it relates to this principle, James says at the very end of his teaching on showing partiality in verse 9 of James chapter 2, that if we show partiality, we are actually committing a sin and we are seen by the law as transgressors. That showing favoritism and partiality to one another in the family of God is a sin. And in this regard, we despise one another. Secondly, we despise one another when we withhold help from those who are in need, especially when we have the ability to give it. Listen again to James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And he will go on in the very next verse and say, faith without works is dead. It's worthless to recognize a need and then not meet that need. John says a similar admonition in 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. He says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Withholding good is a form of despising 
our brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to the next one very carefully. When we resent a fellow Christian who confronts us in our sinfulness, instead of facing and repenting of a sin that is brought to their attention and being grateful to the one who confronts them, straying Christians often strike back and charge the other person as being judgmental and self-righteous and legalistic and hypocritical. And next week we will see in the very next section of this gospel that Jesus issues commands and guidelines for church discipline and how the church is to deal with those in its midst who are living in sin. And even when church discipline is carried out in a loving, gracious, Christ-like manner according to Scripture, it is often rejected and resented and met with hostility. Instead of viewing it as an act from a concerned brother or sister in Christ who is trying to rescue your soul from sin, you harden your heart and you reject it. Finally, when we are indifferent to or judgmental of a fellow believer who stumbles spiritually, how many times have we find ourselves saying, they hurt the church, they hurt their spouse, they hurt their children, they hurt their family, they hurt me. I'm going to have nothing to do with them until they make it all right and do it all right. And as you'll see in this passage, as it develops, Christ teaches that we're to be humble towards our strained, sinning brothers and sisters in Christ and help them in the midst of their sin. Well, that's the principle. See to it that you do not despise, look down on, treat as insignificant these little ones. So we move from the principle to the pursuit at the end of verse 10 and verse 11. Jesus says, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man came to save the lost. And so this text begs us to ask the question, Why should we see that we do not despise one of these little ones? And at the end of verse 10 and in verse 11, Jesus gives us the answers to that question. The first reason why we should not despise these little ones is because in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, I guarantee you that that verse just struck your attention. The phrase, for I tell you, out of Jesus' mouth is emphatic. It's pointing to the importance of what Jesus is about to say. The idea is, with all of my authority, I solemnly tell you this. Their angels always see my Father's face who is in heaven. Now, we have to ask another question of the text. Is Jesus teaching that every believer has their own special guardian angel who is constantly appearing before God's face in his presence? Or is he teaching that angels take an active role in the life of believers? Well, I need you to listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you about angels. And I need you to lay your suppositions about angels to the side. Because some of you are not going to like what I'm about to tell you about angels. But I'm telling you as your pastor for your good so that you would not be misled by false teaching. The Bible unmistakably and clearly teaches that angels are created beings. They are created by God. There is a specific number of them. The Bible says that there are myriads upon myriads upon myriads of angels. And that some of those angels fell and became demons and fallen angels when Satan fell and was removed from heaven. 
And the Bible also teaches that the angel's primary task is to function as messengers and servants of God. They are, listen, church, messengers and servants of God. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that the purpose of angels is to serve God by attending to the care of his people and whatever God tells them to do. And so in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve believers who will inherit salvation? And Jesus teaches us in this verse, look carefully at your Bible, that these angels live in heaven in the very presence of God where they wait attentively for God's commands to serve his little ones. And he says in verse 10, that their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is courtly language for personal access to the King. The implication that Jesus is giving in this verse, if you will read your Bible carefully, is that the angels never take their eyes off the presence of God. That they are constantly in tune to His presence, waiting for His commands, and waiting for them to be sent out to minister to His people. Now, are you still with me? I'm going to give you some clarity. Listen to this statement. There is no passage of Scripture in your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, including the maps at the back of your Bible, that teaches the idea of an individual guardian angel for every believer. That is a man-made tradition and teaching, and it is not found or supported in the Bible. Nor, I hate to break this to you, do you or anyone you know when they die become angels. Could you please reject that? It is not true. You have been told a lie. Now in the context of this verse... In Matthew 18.10, Jesus is speaking of believers and their angels in a collective sense. These angels, whether a distinct group or the whole body of holy angels, are solely responsible for the care of God's people, His little ones. And Jesus says that it is in part because of these angels who live in his very presence in heaven all of the time that you and I are warned never to despise other Christians. That's the point. The fact that God is so concerned about the care of his people that he has a myriad of angels at his disposal in his presence, ready to minister to his people, shows us why we should take the principle of verse number 10 seriously. Their angels are in his presence. But you said, Pastor, there's two reasons. What's the second reason? Well, it's found in verse 11. Well, you say, Pastor, I'm looking in my Bible and I don't see verse 11. I see verse 10 and then it jumps to verse 12. Is the Bible misprinted? No, it is not. If you will look at the end of verse 10, you should have a little footnote. And that footnote will draw you somewhere, depending on how your Bible is laid out, to the bottom of the page or to a side column or somewhere where you will find the answer to that footnote, which is verse 11, and it will read something like this, For the Son of Man came to save the lost. Why is it in the footnote, Pastor, and not up in verse 11, right after verse number 10? 
because many of the early manuscripts of Matthew do not contain this verse. And so many modern translations leave it out. But here's what I want you to know. This verse is almost identical to another verse in your Bible, Luke chapter 19 and verse number 10. The only difference between Luke 19 and verse 10 and Matthew chapter 18 and verse 11 is that in the Luke passage, the words seek and add are added before the word save. So in Luke 19.10, the Bible says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And here in Matthew, he says, For the Son of Man came to save the lost. Well, Pastor, what happened with Matthew's gospel? Well, some early scribe probably read Luke 19.10 and thought, oh, that needed to be included right here in uh, Matthew chapter 18 because it's a similar passage of Scripture. And so uh, in a well-meaning frame of mind, he added it, but most original copies reject it. But the principle is still the same. God sent Jesus from the glory and the splendor of heaven to seek and to save those who are lost. So, friends, the principle, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones because God is so concerned about his people that his holy angels are constantly in his presence, ready at his dispatch to go and minister to them. And the very Son of God himself came to seek and to save those who are lost, God's very people. So we see the principle. We see the pursuit. Now in verses 12 and 13, we see the parable. And Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Do you see how he begins verse 12? Do you notice that in your Bible, friends? Do you see it? What do you think? Jesus is issuing an invitation to every single one of us to think. And you say, well, pastor, I didn't come to church to think. Well, you're in trouble. You should come to church to think. Thinking is a key part of worship. And Jesus says, Do you want to understand this principle that I'm teaching you about how you should relate to other people in the family of God? Then it is going to require you to think. Can you you not see his logic, friends? His people are so important to him that he pursues them. And he pursues them through the work of his angels. And he pursues them through the work of his son, And now he's given you a picture in verses 12 and 13 of what that pursuit looks like. And he says at the very outset, think about it. So think about it. And let me help you think about it. Ponder what he's teaching us. And here's what I want you to know this morning. This parable, this picture of the 99 and the one that was lost and the shepherd that went to find them. Listen, this may be new to you. It is not predominantly about the sheep. It is about the shepherd. And it is about the character of God. And too often we read this parable and we think the parable is all about the sheep. Now, I'm not trying to downplay the role of the sheep. The sheep is an important part in this parable. But it is not the predominant meaning. The predominant meaning of the parable is about the character of God in relationship to his sheep. The character of God in relationship to you and to me. And so, what does this parable teach us about God's character. See, you're thinking already. You're asking good questions. Number one, it teaches us in verse number 12 that God cares for us individually. Jesus asked the question, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? 
Jesus in this story tells of a man who was a shepherd. He had a hundred sheep. One of them went astray. Now notice in your Bible, in verse number 12, and really in this whole passage, verses 10 to 14, how many times Jesus uses the word one. I did the math. I'll do it for you. Four times. Four times. In verses 10 to 14, Jesus uses the word one. And Jesus is teaching us that one sheep, one believer, one who belongs to Christ is so important that the shepherd would leave the other 99 in the flock and go in search of the one that went astray. Bruner, in his book, The Church Book, talks about this parable. And he says, why can't the shepherd be satisfied with 99%? 99% is a pretty good percentage. Most of us would be satisfied with 99%. Some of us as students would praise God for 99%. Like, we've never seen 99% on an exam, right? 99% would be fabulous but not to God God is concerned about the statistically unimportant one Bruner says that one percent and the idea that Jesus is painting for us in this picture is that the shepherd since the strange sheep's absence without ever having to check the entire flock that he knew something was wrong with his flock and he knew something was wrong with one of his flock because he knows his flock individually. And this parable teaches that it doesn't matter which of the flock goes astray, the shepherd will go after the one and he will hunt them down and search for them no matter how far away they wander. And the point is, just as an earthly shepherd will do that for one sheep in his flock, so too will God do for his heavenly flock. He deals with each one of us individually. You know, when I was in the, lived in the South for a while, evangelists would come in and they would be preaching their message and they would say, God's got your number. That's what they'd always say in the South. God's got your number. And I've thought about that over the years. That's bad theology. Do you know what the truth is? God knows your name. He knows your name. He knows you before you were ever formed in your mother's womb, before you ever took your first breath. He knew you. He deals with you individually. Here's the second thing that it teaches about God's character in verse 12. God seeks us when we stray. When the shepherd discovers a sheep is missing, Jesus asks the question. Do you see it in verse 12? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? What's he talking about here? Well, he's teaching us about sheep. And by virtue, he's teaching us about ourselves. Sheep are prone to wonder. That's why we sing the great old hymn. I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone to leave the God that I love. A sheep can have the best shepherd possible on earth who will lead them to clean drinking water, to lush green pastures and to safety, and they will still be discontent and they'll wander off in their own direction and they'll come upon water that is polluted. They'll come upon barren land and they are stuck. They're lost without their shepherd. And these Palestinian shepherds that Jesus is referring to were experts at tracking down and finding the lost sheep. And their love for their defenseless, wayward, lost sheep knew no limits. They would climb on rocks. They would climb into crevices. They would go everywhere in search of those who went astray. They would fight off wolves and bears and lions and any other threat to the sheep. And here's my favorite description about what a shepherd does when he finds the lost sheep that he's in search of. You may have seen me illustrate it before. When he finds them, he'll come to them and he'll kneel down and he'll take olive oil and he'll rub it all over their body and through their fur, checking for wounds and sores and 
cleaning them up. And if they've broken a limb, he'll bandage the limb and splint it. And then he'll pick up the wandering sheep, put them on his shoulders, and carry them back to the flock. And Jesus' point is, if an earthly shepherd will do that for the one, how much more will your heavenly Father do for you? Friends, you need to be reminded this morning, the same God who called you to salvation in Christ Jesus is the same God who will rescue you in your wondering. You may be one in a hundred, the statistically unimportant. You may even think this morning, sitting in this room, God doesn't care about me or what's going on in my life. And this picture, this parable tells you quite the opposite. He will go wherever it takes in the wilderness to find you and bring you back home. The third truth that this teaches us about God's character is found in verse 13. God rejoices over the strange sheep when it is found. Do you see what he says in verse 13? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Do you see the picture? And do you see how Jesus is building all the way through this passage? Here's the principle. Don't despise your brothers and sisters in Christ because I care so much for them. They are so valuable to me that angels stand in my presence waiting for my bidding to go and minister to them and rescue them. And I not only care so much for them that I'll dispatch the angels. I care so much for them that when they couldn't save themselves and they were sheep without a shepherd, I sent my only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd, to seek them and to save them. And if you still don't get it, just think about an earthly shepherd and his flock. He's got 99 of them, but one of them is missing, and he won't rest. He won't be satisfied until that one is brought back into the fold. And when he is brought back into the fold, I will rejoice. I will, literally in the text, be overjoyed it's not that God cares for the one more than the 99 it's that he knows that the 99 are safe and secure and satisfied and the one is broken and bruised and battered and torn and they're lost and they're wandering aimlessly and they're stuck and they don't know how to get out and they need the shepherd to woo them, to rescue them, to bring them back, to set them on solid ground and to show them that this is life and this is emptiness. And when that shepherd, after all of that search, pours oil and binds them up and fixes the wounds, and brings them back into the fold and sees them interacting with the other sheep, how could he not be joyful? So why? Why would you despise these little ones? They are the Father's joy. Did you hear that? You, if you're a believer in Christ today, are a little one. And you are your heavenly Father's joy. He delights in you. Well, we see the principle, we see the pursuit, we see the parable. Verse 14, we see the point. Pastor, what is the point of this passage? Well, Jesus gives it in verse 14. Every parable has a point. And verse 14 is the point of this parable. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Do you see how the verse begins? So it is. 
it ties verse 14 back all the way to verse 10. And really, if you want the broader context, it'll take you all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. Jesus is continuing his theme even to verse 14. And he's telling us in his own words, so it is. This is the point. This is the point. Don't miss it. Just as the shepherd did not give up on the one sheep that went astray, neither will God the Father give up on one of his little ones who go astray. Why? Because, look at the verse, it is not God's will that one of these little ones should perish. Now, the word perish is an interesting word. It's most often used in Scripture for utter, complete destruction. But here it is used to refer to non-permanent ruin or loss. And it's because of the context. Jesus is teaching us about his children. His children can never eternally perish. They cannot lose their salvation. So the parish that he is speaking of here relates to their spiritual progress in their Christian life. And Jesus is teaching that God the Father does not want a single one of his little ones to be spiritually wounded, to be spiritually marred, to be spiritually cast aside. He does not want one of his little ones to fall into dangerous sin that destroys their usefulness to him and to those around them and to the church. He is not willing to let them sever their relationship with him and with others. And so he will not let them perish. That means, friends, even in your sin and even in your disobedience, if you are truly one of God's children, God's not finished with you. That's why Jude said in Jude 24 and 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You don't keep yourself blameless. You don't keep yourself from stumbling. You don't keep yourself at all. If you are a child of God, you are in the hands and the care of your heavenly Father and your shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is the one who keeps you. He is the one who strengthens you. He is the one who rescues you. He is the one that presents you blameless. You don't have the capacity to do that in and of yourselves. If you did, you wouldn't stray. If you did, you wouldn't stumble. The reason why you persevere in your faith, even when you sin, even when you struggle, even when you stray, is because God the Father perseveres, and God the Son perseveres, and God the Holy Spirit perseveres. You are caught up in a relationship of the triune God of the world, and He is the one who upholds you in your stumbling and in your straying. You persevere because the Trinitarian God perseveres. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, speaking of his relationship with his children, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Do you hear it? They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You're in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're in the hand of God the Father. And no one can take you out of their hands. And nothing can take you from their hand. No matter how far you stray, you can still return. So what are we to do with this passage? You've not given us any application to consider, Pastor. 
I'm about to. Number one, to those of you in this room this morning who are in a current state of strain from the Lord, and by the way, let's just be clear, you know who you are. You can pretend and put on the facade and act like everything's okay, but you know in your heart and your soul that you're not where you need to be with the Lord and your relationship with Him, that you're strained, that you have strained, and you are backslidden. My question to you is simple this morning. Do you not see that your presence here in this room today is no coincidence? That God, in His sovereign providence, put you in this room at this moment in your life to be confronted with this passage of Scripture from His holy word to show you that you are not out of His reach. And that if you will turn back to Him today, He will bring you back into the fold. He was seeking you so much that He appointed it for you to be in this room today and be confronted with this passage. Why don't you turn from your strain today, your strain that will never satisfy you, and turn back to your shepherd, the one who cares for your soul? Application number two. For every Christian in the room this morning, this passage demands that we ask of ourselves if we're in danger of disobeying the principle of verse number 10 and despising other believers. It is too easy to say, no, I've got that covered. I'm good and move on. When the reality is every one of us at some point in time have been wounded by other brothers and sisters in Christ. And we've nursed those wounds and we want nothing to do with them. They've brought dishonor to Christ. They've hurt the church. They've hurt others. They've damaged people. They've destroyed relationships. And our natural response to them and to their sin is one of anger and disgust and contempt and indifference. But here's the problem. I'm speaking to all of us. I'm speaking to myself this morning. God pursues the wayward. So what must we? God seeks and restores those who are lost, so must we. God searches, and so must we. And one of the ways that God cares for His people is through His people. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 about those who are straying and struggling. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Did, did you hear the admonition? You know a brother or sister in Christ that is stumbling and struggling in sin. You're to go and rescue them, being careful not to fall in the same sin. Or how about James's admonition in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20? My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He's wondering, go get him. So the application is really simple for the Christians in the room. Who do you know this morning that you need to rescue? Who is it? Who do you know that needs rescue? Final application. To the unbelievers, the non-Christians in the room. Jesus told a very similar parable as this one, except in a different context. This parable that we've studied this morning that you've listened to is all about wandering believers. Jesus told a similar parable of the 99 and the one lost sheep, but in its context, it was for those who were unbelievers. And it illustrated God's concern for those who don't know him. And here's the parable in Luke chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. 
So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you hear that, non-Christian, unbeliever? You are the one outside of the fold in the family of God. God cares for you so much that he's pursuing you to rescue you from fields and streams of water that will never satisfy and will always leave you empty. And Jesus says, when the Father rescues you and pulls you from the barren land and places you in his family, he will rejoice, the heavenly Father will rejoice, and the angels in heaven will rejoice over your rescue and over your salvation. God cares for you so much, unbeliever, that he sent his son as a shepherd to seek you and to save you from your sin and to restore a right relationship with him. And he is the only shepherd who will ever satisfy your soul. So, unbeliever, why wouldn't you turn from your sin and humble dependence, trust in Christ for your salvation and your rescue? The church needs this parable. We need to be reminded how much God cares for his people how much God goes to to build his church and how much God goes to to rescue those who are still outside of his church. Let's pray.